This episode is brought to you by Element, spelled L-M-N-T. What is Element? It's a delicious, sugar-free electrolyte drink mix. As a coach, we are constantly trying to find the best products for our athletes to train and compete at their highest level. Element is a great alternative to other commercial recovery and performance drinks and has enough sodium, potassium, and magnesium to get you feeling and performing your best. Plus, it has zero sugar, no artificial ingredients, and is gluten-free. With eight delicious flavors, you are guaranteed to find one your taste buds will love. I know our athletes love the citrus salt. We keep a variety box in the office, and our athletes stop by every day on their way to practice and games to load up. At this point, they won't even touch another product. With amazing products and sponsors like Element, our podcast would not be possible. Right now, when you click on our affiliate link and place your first Element order, Element will give us 100% commission. Element might have the best return policy on the planet. If you don't love it, you'll be instantly refunded. Our next partner has a product I use every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I wanted a simple all-in-one solution as opposed to the ever-changing variety of supplements I have been taking for as long as I can remember. Sometimes up to three ramekins a day full of pills and powders trying to find the right formula for peak performance. Now that I've been taking Athletic Greens for a few months, I love it and I will never go back. With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food, sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. I take one scoop in the morning on an empty stomach and an additional one in the evening when I'm feeling run down. I've seen such a difference in my own performance that I recently ordered additional AG1 for the rest of my family to use. It costs you less than $3 a day, you're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit, and supports better sleep quality and recovery, in addition to mental clarity and alertness. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash contacts. Again, this is athleticgreens.com slash contacts to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Welcome to the Contacts Coaching Podcast, dedicated to bringing you practical ideas from coaches, sharing what they have learned throughout their career. The show is designed to serve as a digital database of mentorship from a wide network of coaches whose innovative, reflective, and diverse knowledge may offer ideas to enhance your experience. In addition to sport-specific expertise, each episode also dives into the ways in which culture, strategy, and tactics can cross from one discipline to another. I'm your host, Justin Klein. Welcome back to the Contacts Coaching Podcast, along with the host of the Sports Initiative Podcast, Michael Wright, who is the lead coach at the Southampton Football Club for you domestic 
Americans, that would be soccer. But uh, well, thanks for jumping on today. No, listen, really appreciate you having me on. And I said, I think it'll be a really good conversation where hopefully we can take a few learnings from one another and yeah, share some useful practice. Love it. Appreciate it. So for the listeners, we were just chatting about how we got connected and both of us being in the podcast space, always looking for similar type themed shows so that we could share ideas and things we've learned. And Michael reached out and that was probably four months ago. And then basketball season got in the way and storms got in the way. And we're hoping we're going to have power here throughout this thing, but uh, we're finally here. So let's dive in. Michael, if you don't mind, share a quick little background for the audience, and then I'll be able to do the same. And then we'll throw some questions back and forth and see what becomes of this. Yeah, perfect. So yeah, hello to everyone listening. I said, my name's Michael Wright, as Justin's just said there. In terms of me getting into coaching, like many coaches, I was a failed player, if you like. So (laughs) over here, the academy system runs a little bit different to the collegiate system out in the US. So we run academies from the age of nine years old, all the way through to the age of 18. At age 18 in soccer academies, you then get a decision if you get a pro contract or not. At age 18, I got the not, so then decided to go down the university route and went to the University of Bath, which at the time was one of the top two universities in the country. And I was quite fortunate that Southampton Football Club had an academy based out of there. And alongside my degree, I started doing a little bit of coaching and realised actually that was something I was going to enjoy and try and pursue. And so we're a decade further down the line now. I've taken up a variety of different roles from coaching six, seven-year-olds and camp type stuff through to recruitment manager for South. As as you just said there, my current role is working with a multidisciplinary team, lead coaching of our little, of our section. We have curriculums that we adhere to and philosophies and play and all that type of stuff. So yeah, quite interesting decade, but quite nice to be able to see how the club's progressed over 10 years from where we were then to where we are now in the premier league etc that's awesome and i'm gonna dig in here and you can obviously follow back whenever you want as a follow-up but you mentioned that and this is more for educating those of us on the other side of the pond here that in the academy system you have nine through 18 you and then you either get a contract or you don't and i would imagine that's a similar setup to what a lot of european secondary education is where you go through a certain grade and it's like you either on the university track or you're not. How does that align with the educational system at the same time in the United Kingdom? Meaning right here, sports are happening at the school co-curricularly within the programming, but it sounds like there it's separated from your schools. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So it for the most part and i'm going to go for the generic because there are exceptions but for the most part it is completely different and separate until the age of 16 so if i run through what our school and program looks like generically in the uk we start at age i believe five from five to eleven you'll go in primary school that would be generically closer to your location from 12 through to 16 you'll then go to a secondary school again that will be culmination of probably three or four different primary schools put together so slightly larger 
at 16, we then go to what we call college, which is a two-year yeah, two year cycle, if you like. And at that point, you can specialise in subjects that you would prefer to do. Whereas from 16 down, you've done everything. You have to do geography, history, maths, numeracy. At 16 to 18, you can then specialise. So if you want to go into sport, you can do that. If it's psychology, you can do that. And then at 18, you'll then go to university and kind of follow a similar path of trying to specialise. The way academies work is they run outside of that. So if you can imagine you live in Los Angeles, you would go through all those stages in terms of schooling, but then you could be part of the LA Lakers Academy, which means probably three nights a week, you would go and train with their coaches and you would go and get, I'm going to put this in inverted commas, expert coaching with the way that the LA want to play and they want to bring their youth players up to play for the Lakers long term and then at 18 years old you would then get the decision of do you get signed to the roster or do you not get signed to the roster if you don't you have to go and find somewhere else to play if you do you then become one of the LA Lakers so in terms of systems it's very different to how obviously you guys operate in terms of the academy but also in terms of it being entrenched into high school basketball, high school sports and collegiate sports as well. Because you don't have to do that in the UK. You could miss all of the collegiate sports out and yeah. go straight pro if you wanted. Yeah. And on that note, if by doing that, it sounds like sports specialization comes on a lot sooner. Because if you're going three nights a week to this academy, that doesn't leave a whole lot of time to be doing other activities. It doesn't sound like it's seasonal. It sounds like that's year round for the duration of your youth. Yeah, you're spot on. So you probably go from, for generic football academies, you would go from August, this is for soccer, August through to June. And then you'd probably get maybe two weeks of June, four weeks in July, and maybe two weeks of August off. And then you'd go again to the following season. And that starts from under nine, under 10. Yeah. Interesting. So it sounds like there isn't a culture at all then, or it's very small of being a multi-sport athlete. No. So when you get, so this is the bit that probably fascinates me in the US and you can probably attest to this a little bit more than I can. I find the idea of multi-sport athletes, particularly at the college collegiate level, where they're able to cross-pollinate. Now, I know that obviously as the higher up they get, they start to make decisions because NFL, MLB, NBA, all that type of stuff. But you're able to do that. Whereas in the UK, I would say... Some clubs do, they will say, go and do other sports. So like in our environment, if you've got school sport, because they do school bits around it, more for social more than anything else, we will encourage them to go and play that. But it's more so you'll end up probably doing one sport. And I'd say most people specialise from the age. If you're at the age of 13, most people are specialised in a sport and that's the only sport they will do for pretty much the entire year. Wow, that is super fascinating to me. So let's flip that on its head here. So over here, you don't have an academy-based system which are connected to professional teams. There are a variety of reasons and a lot of bureaucracy, but bottom line is basically athletics at the would you call it primary school age? So five to 12 ish. So up through fifth grade 
for sure are all handled at like the recreational level, your local YMCA's, your, your local little league, whatever it might be. And then there are club sports that evolve out of that as well. Travel sports, which is like the recreational plus where you're having the intro level where you just sign your kids up and you play and you have a good time. It's probably a day a week of practice and then a game on the weekend or whatever to travel where they're probably practicing twice a week and then on weekends going to tournaments and playing all day. And then at the middle school level, grades six through eight, some middle schools have sports that are embedded, but not all of them. So like our local middle school league is volleyball in the fall with cross country. Then there's a basketball in the winter. Oh, volleyball, soccer and cross country in the fall basketball in the winter and then golf, tennis and track and field in the spring. So that's embedded at the school. And then high school offers everything depending on whatever the state sanctions. So there's 30 sports sanctioned in our state and we offer 25 of them at the high school level and they're seasonal. But then those clubs operate year round, right? And so if you're playing club volleyball per se, you're going to play your high school volleyball season. And then that ends in early November. And then your club play starts again, December through the end of May. And so that similar that August to June, but only part of that is with your school. The other part is outside with your club or what's that's becoming more prevalent. What the traditional approach to it is you're a seasonal athlete. So you're going to play volleyball. Then you're going to go on to play basketball. Then you're going to go on to play softball. And then whatever your primary sport is, that's what you would be doing over the summer or kind of sprinkled in throughout, which is very interesting the way you describe that. Yeah. So I guess I've got two questions for you off the back of that. Firstly, is it competitive? So when you get to that middle school age that you mentioned or mm-hmm. like in your school, is it competitive? And I guess how competitive is it? And then secondly, how do you find the skill retention piece? Because if you've got multi-sport athletes that are going from, listen, basketball and volleyball probably got some transference. Mm -hmm. But if you're going from maybe soccer to basketball or baseball to something else, I guess the skills aren't exactly aligned. So how do you find that in terms of them retaining it when they're not in in season for Mm -hmm. their block of that particular sport? Yeah, I'll answer the first one. The first question, is it competitive? Yes, at different levels. So there are two local middle school leagues here. There is the public school league and then there's the private school league. And in that case, the public school league is more competitive across the board in all of those sports. You're usually you'll have a sixth grade team, a seventh grade team and an eighth grade team. If you have enough athletes to play, you have a league championship, you have all of that. You're playing and competing like you would at the high school in the private school league, because the schools are a lot smaller around here. This isn't the case like down in LA to your point earlier, their private school league is probably more competitive than the public school league up here. It's a smaller setup where the private school league is you're basically playing games and practicing and trying to do introduce the sport and get better at it and grow. But if you really want to play at a competitive level, that's where you'd probably need to be playing that sport as a club sport outside. So we have a first year water polo program that practices a couple nights a week and they're going to play one or two weekends, but we've never had it before. None of the other schools offer water polo. So kids that want to continue to play water polo 
are going to have to join their club after that and do that at the, so that's like the middle school age. So it's competitive depending on where you live, what the population of students are, what the ability to sponsor teams is, because it also factors into what's the funding like at your school, if you're a public school, or if you're a private school, what is the other co-curricular programming that's going on and does it mesh, right? That's that answer. The second piece is where I feel the youth sports industrial complex is hurting high school athletics. This is my soapbox, where I feel like kids are being forced at an earlier age to specialize in order to keep up with the Joneses and chase whatever dream has been put in front of them based on messaging from the club sports world that if you don't do X and you don't pay us all this money, then you're not going to get Y. And what I just so you know, the data in the United States or hell, the data is for United States colleges, but it's probably similar worldwide. But 3% of high school athletes play college sports at any level, junior college, NAIA, and CA Division three, two, and one. And pushing all your chips in on that, if you're doing it for that purpose, which seems to align with this academy idea, right? It's like, you got to play in this academy. What's the percentage that translates to getting a pro contract? I have no idea. But being a seasonal athlete, and by that meaning you're playing multiple sports, you could spend this argument to, to fit whatever side of the coin you fall on. But what I know to be 100% true is that the exercise science research does not support sports specialization from an injury and a longevity standpoint in any way, shape, or form and promotes cross-training in the sense. And the easiest way to do that is to play something else and to do different movements. And so that's a big part of it. And then secondly, you asked about skills specifically, so I will speak to that, and then I'll give you my other spin, which is the skills translate if you pair the, I'm going to use the word right, the correct sports with one another. And that's not saying one sport is better than the other, but if you're looking for skill transference, certain sports are going to translate better. So for example, soccer lacrosse, field hockey, it's all the same game. You're just using a different implement for all intents and purposes, right? You have attack men, you have midfielders, you have defenders, right? And so you're playing in space. You're trying to move the ball in space. You're holding a stick up here in one. You're bent over holding a stick on the other one, right? And you're kicking a ball on the third one. I would say basketball and water polo translate skill-wise. They're the same game. One happens to be in the water, one happens to be on a court, right? And so when you think skills, if you're talking about the technical skill of kicking a ball or getting a touch or shooting or whatever, the technical piece isn't going to transfer necessarily as well, but the conceptual piece is going to transfer at a higher level to where game awareness grows a lot faster because you're being put in different situations. And so I think, yes, it transfers. And if you want to talk about the technical and that's something that you want to train, then that's where, if that's your shtick as an athlete, like I'm going to be a great basketball player, but I'm also going to play football and run track, which have transferable components for other reason, right? Physicality, speed, the ability to handle contact, right? All of those things that you're not going to get anywhere else. You have to put time in outside of your other season sport to then train that skill acquisition period, right? So I've got a kid who 
comes in 8 39 o'clock every night comes and gets the keys and goes in the gym and works for a half hour 45 minutes throughout the year while he's playing football even during basketball season which is what he's working on and then during track right now he just comes and gets that training but what i will say translates more than anything is the idea of competing the idea of having something on the line the idea of role definition and playing a different role on each of these teams right so maybe in heck i don't know basketball where you're the primary ball handler and then you go out and play soccer where you may touch the ball 15 times during a match but you still got to work on communication you still got to work on seeing the field you still got to work on spacing right those things translate in a different way from a skill standpoint. So I don't know if I answered the question, but I think that's what I see happening. And our best players are our multi-sport athletes when it comes to straight competition, learning how to win, doing whatever you need to do to move the needle. And that's not how I used to be wired. I used to be like, yo, we need to be playing year round so we can do X, Y, and Z. And now I look at my roster, I got 13 guys and nine of them are multi-sport athletes. Four of them are three-sport athletes. And of my five starters, four of them are three-sport athletes. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because the other bit that's probably going to be quite different. So we will not have leagues in academies until the under 18s age group. So until you're junior and senior, you will not take part in a league type environment up until that point you would do tournaments probably mm-hmm. i'd say four times a year if you like but beyond that it would all be friendlies so friendlies which would be like they're not scrimmages because you're playing a real game they're just yeah. not accumulating points towards any title yeah so it wouldn't go towards winning anything at the end of the year it doesn't go towards tally or anything like that it's purely we would turn up and we will play another academy or at times we've got a really in-depth grassroots system here as well that kind of sits below that so we would just play the game work on some certain aspects of the game to try and help them with that and then that game's done and then you go to the next one so that's what we would look like in terms of our our actual games and stuff it wouldn't take place in terms of league format until the underage of 18 which is mm-hmm. quite a- there's an argument to be made for for that approach in all sports. So over the course of a August to June training period, how many friendlies would you play before you get to the 18U period? Meaning if we're in a season that runs from November to February for basketball, the high school level, you're playing between 24 and 30 games, basically one or two a week probably average two a week during that season for the whole time. What does that look like in your space in regards to frequency? Yeah, so again, this is this really does change and we probably adapt it according to ages. So if they're going through puberty, we're acutely aware of quartiles and the effect of puberty can have on that. So that we'd pr- probably try and deload. But if I look at it probably in the last month for our players, we have probably done every Saturday in the last month plus three midweekers on a Wednesday which probably gets you out at seven and we'd classify that as quite a heavy month 
there'd be other months where we would do only the four Saturdays of a weekend. But if you, yeah, if you, I mean, if you times that, if you go from August through to May doing that over a season, that's going to be nine months worth of that type of stuff. So you're looking at the kind of like 36-ish games minimum that were friendly that don't actually go into anything. But we do try and drip feed in competitions and tournaments because we think that kind of what you've alluded to there, it's important that they understand how to win when they need to, but also how to deal with that. So it's all well and good doing techniques or skills, whereas there's perceived less pressure because actually this doesn't count towards anything. But how can you then adopt those skills or can you do that technique or can you execute that move or that play when if you lose, you get knocked down? So we try and drip feed that in. And then the further along the pathway they go, the more frequent those tournaments become and the bigger they get. So our under 15s, for example, at Southampton just took part in a Premier League festival that had teams coming over from Germany to come and play as well as people from around England and stuff as well. So you're playing some of the biggest clubs. You'd, it'd be the equivalent of the 76ers, the Knicks coming across, San Antonio, the Lakers, Portland, Oklahoma, all coming and going, right, now we're going to play a festival with us eight teams. Who's the best? So it's trying to take those learnings you've done over the year or for the past two or three months and then put them into a competitive environment. Yeah, I think that's where there's a sweet spot that is hard to find when there's so many different governing bodies, let's call it. In the United States, there's 50 states, there's 50 different state governing bodies within that. Like on the East Coast, there's a private school league that plays across multiple states who are determining rules and how that works. And then obviously at the collegiate level, you have the NCAA and the NAIA and the junior college world. But to your point of taking pressure off of winning there is an argument to be had culturally in the united states that club sports have almost de-emphasized that to a negative degree at this point where you go and you play four games in a weekend and it's like, ah, you're just out there playing and it's self-serving for the individual versus the team component of sports, which I think is most important is how do you learn to be part of something bigger than yourself, right? Because that's going to translate into the world, how you operate as an employee, as uh, a colleague or whatever that is. And now you have these tournaments that run all summer where maybe you practice once a week and then you just, or you fly in and you play games and then you leave and it's like, all right, what are we trying to get out of this? And so it's interesting, like you said, okay, if we play once a week on Saturdays and then we sprinkle in a Wednesday, the frequency of competition is probably right from a physiological standpoint. And at the same time, does that give you enough if you are in a condensed season and if kids are still trying to figure out what they want to do in life? Because it sounds like at the age of nine, you got to figure out, I guess I'm just going to play soccer or I'm going to go play tennis where, you know, I'm real bullish here on, look, at least through your freshman and sophomore year, I want you playing everything. And then if you want to specialize and try to be elite after that, we can have a conversation about what that looks like. But talk to me about how you feel that lands in your system. Yeah, so I, I think what I will say is, soccer is the extreme over here 
So because of the money that's involved in the Premier League and whatnot, it, that is the extreme version. So that's probably the lowest it would go. It's the most money that's put into academies and all that type of stuff. But I would say that all sports over here will look to vie for players around that 13s age group I think from that onwards they will then go we're looking for you to specialize and they may not say it explicitly and they may not say it oh, okay we're going to put this in any sort of form or email or anything like that but I think most of them they'll organize schedules that would lend itself to you being a one sport athlete and I think it's just the culture of it of the multi-sport athlete is very different because people assume you can't be high performance in all of them there seems to be an assumption that no if you want to be high performing there becomes a point where you need to look to specialize now at the youngest age groups I think most sensible practitioners I'd like to think myself is included in that you encourage the kids to do other school sports and as I said school sports is more of a recreational piece there is a little bit of win and losing to it but it's not a big deal if one of my boys comes in and says oh, I've got a rugby tournament or I've got some rugby training can I go and do it absolutely we've got some players that come in two nights a week rather than three because they play tennis brilliant but I also know that's not every academy. And I know from personal experience, having been through that system, that's not every academy. Some will say, no, you're either here or you're not. I'd say yeah, I'm quite fortunate that Southampton, we pride ourselves on that. We have an S&C department with our youngest players that do multi-sport with them in our training sessions to try and make it, again, giving them opportunities to do other sports and maybe get other interests and stuff. But we've had to put that in because we have to have, I think it's six contact hours for training per week as a minimum and then you've got to have a game at a weekend as I said from 13s up I would say most sports organize their schedules to make it incredibly difficult to be a multi-sport athlete in the UK it's very interesting if this is all funded from the Premier League teams so is it just a free-for-all anybody can participate how do you determine who's in the academy and who's not and how does that all shake out across the different age groups so basically there's 72 professional clubs. This is another thing that's really interesting. So in soccer in the UK, there's 72 professional clubs. So if you can imagine, I'd liken this to basketball, you've got the NBA, you would then have like NBA 1, NBA 2, NBA 3. And people can get promoted and relegated in and out of those every year. So the Premier League loses three teams relegated every year. And then from NBA 1 would go up into NBA. So all of those clubs... I would say of the 72, maybe there's 70 that have academies. All of them will have academies. Some of it's funded by the Premier League. Some of it's funded by another organisation called the EFL, which is the English Football League. It's the equivalent to the NCAA and the NAIA, if you like. So they're in the same space. It's just slightly different organisations. Um so the funding in football, it works around that. And then academies obviously commit to spending a certain amount of money on their academies that then gets them a category of, and I'm not going to go into that because it's quite a thing, but that gives them a category of what they then receive from the Premier League to put back into it. The way that it works in terms of getting players in is every local area will have a grassroots club, like you've mentioned. So they'll have volunteers that go out week in, week out, work with children to try and give them love of the sport. You will then get scouts who will go and watch those games 
and will say, oh, we've identified your child as high potential. Would they like to come in for a trial or an assessment period? Um, yes or no. If they want to, they then come in for an assessment period. Then you get offered a registration by that football club. And that's how it works. Obviously, similar to basketball, some teams, some areas will have multiple teams in a demographic. So if you've got LA Lakers, Clippers, Sacramento, they can probably go after the same players. But there is a stipulation of an hour for the younger age groups and then 90 minutes for the older age groups that you can't live outside of that. So if you do, that kind of narrows your choices. So you couldn't live in Nevada and go and play for the Knicks. If you live in Nevada, you'd have to find somewhere that was 90 minutes from you. So there's a, it's a bit of a stipulation around what that looks like. Right. But yeah, essentially, it's a scout process. You get invited in and then obviously you get offered a registration or place or not. OK, so let's circle back on that. Now, you have a kid that has been seen at the grassroots, has come in and started playing in the academy, but also didn't start till they were 13 or whatever, just because they were doing other things. Maybe they were boxing or whatever. And uh, but they're still a freak. And by that, I mean, we had a kid who graduated last year who's playing Division One lacrosse. And when she's the same age as my kids. And when we were younger, we said, hell, since she was 10 years old, it's this kid's going to be a Division One athlete in whatever sport she finally decides she wants to play. And played all three seasons in high school and then is playing Division One lacrosse. So there are those kids out there that both through work ethic and innate athleticism, skill, personality, just how they're wired are different. Those kids I'm imagining can come in and fall right in and play. But in, in the academy system in the UK and whatever sport it happens to be, are there people like... Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders of the world that are just freaks. And it's like they can play e even with the specialization. Yeah, no, I'm done with soccer. I'm going to go play rugby. And they're still good enough to go play at an elite level. Has that so, existed? Are there people like that professionally? Yeah, there is. They're probably rare and becoming increasingly rarer. I think what tends to happen is they, at school, will dabble in a variety of different sports but as again I said like the school level it's in like a gym class you'll have you're some that are really excel and love sport in a class with people that love the game but aren't very good and that's fine as well so there are people that will do that but I would say the majority of the time there's a pecking order of where players go dependent on what you're in. So if you're in a private school over here, you will probably play rugby or cricket. Those will be the two sports that you'll go to. That's what um, our president talks about. Like I said, he grew up there. He's yeah. like, everybody play rugby, everybody play cricket. So if you go to a private school, you'll probably play one of those two sports and those will be your first choice. The majority of the school over the schools over here are public schools and I would say the majority of people their first choice would be soccer so if a soccer club comes calling they will probably go and they will probably give up whatever else they were doing to go and do that 
but you don't get many people that at the top level will jump between the two. And there's an individual called Ian Botham who did it years ago, but he was the late 80s, early 90s. We have a couple of people that do it across codes of rugby because there's two types of rugby. They'll do that. But I can't, rem- I can't remember the last person that would have jumped from high-level rugby to high-level football. I'd be hard-pushed to say that's ever happened. Whereas I know, obviously, in the US, you've got some examples of people that can make that jump or like a Russell Wilson, for example, who had a choice of MLB or NFL. Over Patrick here, Mahomes, right? Yeah, and LeBron James kept playing. That. If LeBron had kept playing football, he'd be in the NFL, right? There are people yeah. that are just built different. Russell Westbrook probably could have been an Olympic track athlete. So it's like, they're, that that's what I was curious about with the specialization piece. Let me ask this other question that I was thinking about while you were talking earlier. Curriculum. And I know in soccer, because our head coach has it, there are coaching degree programs that exist. And I'm not sure if that's a European thing across all sport disciplines or just in soccer, but I'm also interested in the curriculum where you've got nine to 18. What are you doing at the lower levels that you have found as you've matured as a coach still translates to the 18U level? Meaning we do this at 9U and we do this at 18U because this is how valuable it is on a regular basis. So I think there's probably two things and these probably have now resonated with me as a coach. So they're things I'm most passionate about. So I'd say practice as in particular individual skill practice carries on. And I would say actually less of the actual skill, but more of the mindset of I can't do something currently and I'm going to work really hard by my own accord to do it. So what you mentioned earlier around that individual who does, spends half an hour every evening throughout the season, regardless if it's basketball season or not, that type of thing is something for me that we would we really resonates with me because I think actually we're not so much trying to teach them the slap turn or the hook turn or whatever you want to call it. What we're actually trying to teach them is them to take ownership of their learning. So we're going to give them these challenges that are hard and we're going to say to them, we want you to improve on this. Here's a little challenge. How many can you do in 30 seconds? Who can keep the ball up for the longest? But ultimately, it's trying to get them out in their back garden, out on the street, practicing. So for me, whilst people say oh, the practicing, it doesn't translate, I actually think it's more of the mindset of the practice and the idea that you can get better at something if you persevere through failure. So that that would be one. And then I would say the second one for me would be around 1v1s. So I think the idea of being able to dominate your opponents out of possession, can you be really aggressive, really intense to win the ball back? What strategies do you have? If you're playing against someone who's six foot four, who's or a LeBron's type, how does that change if you're so when you're playing against an Isaiah Thomas? What how do you need to change your footwork? How do you need to manipulate your body? What type of techniques do I use if they're left-handed compared to right-handed? Equally on the other side of that, attacking-wise, what strategies and skills have I got that I'm going to get success with? So what's my plan A? Plan A doesn't work. Have I got a B, C, D that might not be as good, but are going to still be culpable? So for me, those are probably the key things that we focus on. With the youngest ones, I'd say it's the ball mastery elements of being really comfortable in and around the ball, having lots of touches. We'll do that for 20 minutes every session. 
We'll try and make it in a space where they get the ball and me. So they get used to those touches, get an idea of what they can practice at home. And then the 1v1 element of actually how am I going to affect my opponent? What are their weaknesses? What are their strengths? What are my weaknesses? What are my strengths? And getting a self-awareness piece of how can I affect the person I'm going against? And then as we go up the age group, you then start adding in it's me and my partner against them so what does that look like or me and my partner against them too and now we're looking at all the tertiary and primary players yeah all the tertiary players around that all right so i'm fascinated by 1v1 v1 in soccer because as a basketball coach there's a lot of one-on-one play not necessarily in team practices but in skill development stuff <clears throat> but there's a basket you're trying to score on you're trying to get a stop making soccer it's mind-blowing i would have never even thought about it but as you talked it's more about playing control games with the ball. So I figured that out. But <clears throat> I want to go back to this other thing that you didn't say, but I gleaned from what you were saying. And the question is, in a traditional training session, and for those of you listening that are not soccer slash football for the rest of the world people, it seems that soccer people call practice in the American sense training. So we're going to use that word. In a training session, how much time is devoted to skill acquisition versus team tactics, especially in an academy system where you're basically playing year round three days a week versus in a condensed season like we experience. And you have games that I joke are often arbitrarily on the schedule that get in the way of you having practice and getting better. These games get in the way. How much time is, is, skill acquisition versus tactics of understanding competitive full 11 v 11 play so the honest answer to this is it's a minefield but i'll try and talk you through it so if you can with the youngest players so the very youngest i would say we would endeavor to uh, three times a week for 20 minutes do some skill acquisition pieces from the ball mastery stuff i alluded to and our training sessions are normally or practice sessions are normally an hour and a half maybe with an additional snc slot off the back of that for half an hour as well so we do an hour and a half three times a week plus with snc off the back of that yeah it would be probably 20 minutes to half an hour of skill acquisition then 20 minutes to half an hour of the 1v1 practice off the back of that we would then probably look to do constraints-led approach type work of sessions so we look to confine the game that we're in so for example if we were looking at in basketballs, layups are now worth three or layups are now worth four. So there's a there's a, a need or not a need or a, yeah, a want to try and get layups. So they're going to try and figure out opportunities where they're able to do that. And that would probably look like our Monday session. So our Monday session would be the one, the ball mastery 1v1, a game of some sort. Wednesday would probably be similar, but what we would then start to do is add in elements of some tactics into that, into the game at the end. So you might say right now, if we're looking at layups, we know that we struggle with layups from the left-hand side of the court because of the way that we switch the ball. So actually, can we find strategies to try and do it from that area of the court? On a Friday is probably where you do 45 minutes of a game at the end and begin to look at tactics and go, okay, here's some tactics we're going to 
bolt around the game. That's what it would look like from the younger age groups. From the older age groups, I could imagine them doing, when you get into that Wednesday-Thursday sessions, the Wednesdays would be a 45-minute game with a lot of tactics in there. And then towards the end of the week, they'd probably do, at times, some unopposed work, looking at specific things. They would have had clips circulated to say we're playing against this team so they do xyz or with the curriculum topic this week is xyz here's examples of you doing it in training or previous games and going towards that so i'd say at the younger age group it doesn't have great emphasis it's more on enjoyment skill acquisition but as you probably get to 14s 15s it becomes quite evident that they're doing a lot of tactical stuff to try and support the boys with our philosophy of play so every club will have an idea of how they want to play and why they want to play that way and understanding your role within that and then moving forward to what it looks like at the game of the weekend so we know if we're playing a 3-4-3 how do, how will that go against what we're playing at the weekend where we know that they're playing a 4-4-2 or something like that what uh, does that look like your end in terms of tactical stuff do you do a lot of work on that or not really so yeah, let me think this through here and we'll go the same route at the the younger age group first. For listeners, most of the under 12, let's call it, stuff is recreational unless you're playing on an outside travel team. And then it is primarily skill acquisition because you're playing weekend tournaments and you have no idea who you're playing, right? So it's like, what are the generalized tactics that can go across whomever you're playing, right? So if you think softball, right? How do you handle first and third situations, right? Things like that. As you get into your organized school play, let's say, and you have more practices with those groups, you develop a team identity and you build into that, right? So depending on your personnel, you may be playing a particular scheme. You practice that. At the high school level, very much you have a program or team identity in regards to how you want to approach the sport. So we play more of an up and down fast tempo. We pick up full court defensively and press in basketball, play man to man in the half court, play a lot of space based basketball and offense where we're trying to create as much space as possible. We don't run a lot of set plays. Other programs are calling a set play every time up the court. And then to your point, if they're game planning for a particular team, then they need to know how they're going to be defended. They need to know how they're going to take certain things away, have counters. Whereas the other approach, which is more philosophical, so to speak, you're teaching concepts versus specific plays, right? Or if you're going to see this particular type of zone, okay, how are you attacking that? So I would say at the high school level, there's more time spent on the game-to-game specific tactics because you know who you're playing, especially late in the year when you're into league play, right? You know who's coming up on the schedule where in the preseason, it's tournament play. So you may play Thursday, Friday, Saturday. You know who you're playing in game one, but you have no idea who you're playing in games two and three. And how do you figure that out? And I think to your point, it's, this is the challenge of coaching. How do you want to spend the only non-renewable resource that we have, which is time? You have 90 minutes. How do you want to spend that time? You want to do 90 minutes of skill development because skills equal freedom. And ultimately, the more skilled your athletes are, the better you're going to be. Or do you want to spend 90 minutes working only on tactics because this is who you have and they're not going to get any better in the next month. 
So let's go play with what we have and figure out a scheme that's going to allow you to have the most success. Or do you find a sweet spot in the middle? And I think it's ultimately to that philosophy, you know, what I'm hearing about how the UK manages things and seems like most European countries based on what I've studied is there's this long growth curve over time of compounding interest. Like we're going to put in a lot of time over the course of these kids' careers, they're going to become better individually the more time they put in, which then will allow us at the older age group to play more competitive games. And so I think the blend of that with what we do here in regards to having seasons, because I'm a big proponent of that, like I said, sounds like it would be the perfect match. Yeah, and I guess the thing for us as well is, and this is a quote that I had given to me, which I think is brilliant, is my job ultimately is to help the athletes or the young people or players be as best prepared for their next step as possible. So that doesn't matter if I'm an under nines coach or under 14s coach or under 16s coach or under 18s coach. Because ultimately, until the way that the system works over here, until you're in the first team, it doesn't actually matter if you win or lose. There is a league table, but until you get to that top end, it doesn't matter if you win or lose. Majority of the time, people aren't going to lose jobs over win or losing seasons at under 18s at high school or collegiate age groups. It's like, actually, you're judged on how many players have we successfully managed to get through to our first team. My job as a practitioner is purely to get them as best prepared for that next step. And that might be emotionally developing them, might be physically developing them, in which case it's fine for me to take resources away from one department and put it somewhere else and making that jump. The challenge, I guess, comes for collegiate coaches. I do watch American sports and stuff is actually there's an element of winning in terms of job security, particularly for those collegiate levels. So actually, how does, and I'm going to, this is a really poor name with everything he's done recently, but like an urban mind, how does he help his program win, but make sure he's developing the players? Because actually the best development for his quarterback might be doing a spread offense and we're going to spread it for now and we're going to make him make loads of decisions of where to throw the football why to throw it there understanding concept but mm. that might not help him win games what might help him win games is get Derek Henry in the backfield mm. to Alabama but plow it down their throat and win games yep. and it's understand that balance whereas here for the most part we don't really have that it's no it's compounding interest our job is to try and help prepare them. And if they make it to the first team and everyone can say, okay, we were a little step along that player's journey rather than them chopping and changing around. Yeah, that's, I think, the biggest shift that I have seen in my own approach. And what we try to share with those around us is what you just described with decision-making. How do you get more decision-making in your training sessions, which will then translate to gameplay. And if you are system dependent, that becomes a little bit harder because you're manipulating certain aspects of that. Whereas if it's more conceptual, then, and I don't know the equivalent in soccer, if you get double teamed, every time you touch the ball, that's a different decision than just playing against one person. So how do you get reps based on that and create your practices where 
you are training decision-making versus training how to execute a play set. And I think that's a big shift in each coach, how you approach the game. And I think you brought up an interesting point, which is if your outcome is tied to your longevity, you're going to sacrifice some of the growth in the developmental stages to focus on outcome versus process. How do you see that being played out at the worst level in your system where it's detrimental to places where there's been an investment in development versus outcome? Sorry, just so I get the question right. Are we talking about where it's gone too far the other way, where they focus too much on development rather than actually, or do you mean the other way around? No, it sounds like the academy system is focused on development. And it's a growth process over time. But here, especially in competitive, in in the collegiate level, for sure, and definitely the pro level, it's like you are what your win-loss record is. And your job depends on your win-loss record. So how do you marry those two and... Where obviously we know why that's detrimental, but like, where's the sweet spot and how has the European model hacked it, so to speak, or haven't they? Because you still see people in the Premier League getting fired, right? So the top end haven't hacked it. The top end, as you mentioned there, they will get sacked left and sent after three months. It's madness, the lifespan, because the idea that you can ingrain yourself into an environment and get change. There's a philosophy over here called the new manager bounce, which is the idea that if you're a struggling team, if you sack and get a new coach in, he'll help you get enough wins to keep you in the league. So what some teams do, I think there's a team over here called Watford who are currently in the second division down in the, the Premier League. They've, I think, got their 19th manager in the last five years, which is some more than some managers have had over their entire existence as a club. Again, it gives you an idea of what it looks like at the top level. I think in terms of the academy stuff and working on that pathway, I think it is a fine balance of preparing them for what that nev- next level looks like because... If it is only ever nicey and if it is only ever development, actually, when they get loaned out or so over here, we have a loan system. So an under 18 player who's doing really well that isn't quite ready for the Lakers might go and play for I'm going to I'm going to have a go because they're not doing very well at the moment. But the Spurs so that like the they might loan the Spurs a player because it makes the Spurs better but also gives that player some game time opportunities that he wouldn't get at the Lakers. If you don't prepare him for actually winning and losing matters and that actually you're going into an environment with men whose mortgages are on you winning, you're not doing them a service. So what probably happened at the start was everything went developmental. There was no leagues, there was no tournaments, there was no preparation. And what they've now tried to do is add in these tournaments in a variety of formats systematically so that players and coaches understand that you've got your philosophy you've got your ideas how can you do it pressurized but then also reflect on yourself of as a coach what have I done what haven't I done well what have I prepared them for what haven't I prepared them for so I think we're probably hitting a speed spot now where they're adding tournaments in to make it competitive because they went too far the other way where it was so developmental that actually it was not preparing them for what competitive 
sport at the men's level or women's level actually looked like was which was as detrimental as it being over competitive from really young age groups let's close with this because you mentioned it super early in the conversation probably before we started recording about how do you find techniques that cross-pollinate across disciplines and here obviously when I am, as the athletic director, pushing a multi-sport approach. I'm out watching practices. I can steal from other – I watch water polo and go say, hey, that was really cool. I'm going to do this at basketball practice today. How do you do that when things are so specialized there and you don't get the same opportunity to go watch your athletes play? Like, I'll go watch my basketball players play their baseball game, right? I'll go watch them run track or play lacrosse yesterday and look at some things that are being done and think about, oh, wow. Interesting that they're getting that out of him when I didn't. Like, what are they doing? And so how do you do that in a culture that seems to be specialized from the time they're really young, which then I would imagine if you want to get better at soccer, you're going to soccer academies and degree programs in soccer. And it's not actually, you know what, I'm gonna go watch these guys play basketball and coach basketball and do some of that. So, yeah, I think what you said there around the player bit, we would struggle to get information on the player in different sports. We'd obviously speak to schools, but again, that at times is a good gauge, at times not, because if they're just not academic and sport is all they want to do, then that becomes its challenges. So for the players, you struggle. In terms of the actual sports side, I would say that there's two ways. The first one, study visits have become a big part of what people do. So working for Southampton, or use a US example, if you work for the Lakers Academy, you might go and speak to the Dodgers and go and spend a two-day study visit with the Dodgers around what they do with their players' process, how they work them. Then you might go across and work with Las Vegas Knights in hockey and get an understanding of that and try and go and actually watch those things on study visits. But again, one, they're costly. And two, you're hoping that you're getting a good insight into what those look like. We're fortunate at Southampton. We do. We do a lot of that. And then secondly, if I'm being really honest, this is why I started the podcast in the first place. Because I feel like there's a massive gap between what the average practitioner is able to get and receive and understand compared to where we should be at. Ultimately, should be in a position where I can go and watch a basketball coach and go actually it's a really interesting dynamic in terms of that low post player and where he puts his feet and that translates really well into a striker in soccer to where he uses body to roll and I hadn't seen it described like that but actually that's a really nice way of doing it or in football to rugby that's a really interesting tackling technique in terms of the arm wrap and the speed of approach and whatnot. That's something I should take with me. Yeah, I guess the study visits is the practical example. The honest example is why I started the podcast in the first place, because I wanted to learn from other people as to what they do in their environments to try and make me better at my everyday job. Yeah, no, me too. started this as a digital database of mentorship so that we could share ideas. But Here's a great example. This really has to be our last one. We've been going for a while here. We can maybe do a part two in a month or so. But in basketball, I can put three guys in a basket, give them two balls, and they can get up volume shots just working on repetition and technique. I'm sure you've seen that. Most people have. You got a rebounder, you got a passer, you got a shooter. They take turns. Maybe they're shooting to 10 makes. Maybe it's for a minute. See how many makes. Whatever. You can vary the drill a million different times. 
I'm talking with our lacrosse coach who comes in all the time to watch basketball practice, and we're trying to hack how do you replicate that in lacrosse, right? Where you're shooting on a goal, the ball is now in there, you have to go retrieve it, it doesn't come back. Like, how do you conceptually replicate that in soccer? If you just wanted to train shooting and get a bunch of volume shots, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, you could have a pile of balls, you can have a feeder, you can have a guy shooting, right? And you take, I don't know, 20 shots from the 30 meter mark, whatever it is, then you got to go collect all the balls. But have you figured out any way to get volume at something when your sport discipline doesn't necessarily allow for that? Yeah. So if I use a basketball example as an example, because it would probably make most things, and you have to bear with me in terms of how this sounds because again I have a good understanding but not great so I would start probably with a defender with the ball in the key he would pass out to to someone at the top of the three-point line and then after passing out his role is to go and close down an individual who is stood at the side of one of the of the three-point line the person on the edge of the three-point line has got a decision whether they cut at the basket in behind for a layup or whether they stay wide to then catch and shoot. And we'd replicate that over and over again, because you mentioned around the decision-making piece. So what we'd look at from our end is actually, what's the decision for the defender? Well, the defender's got to make a choice of, do I go out quickly? In which case, if I go too quick, he's going to cut to the basket and go in behind me. If I'm too slow, he's going to catch and shoot. For your attacker, the catch and shooter, it's like decision of what to do one of those things, but also where on the three-point line am I catching and shooting from? Because if I come a little bit deeper, that might provide me more time. And I can play the cat and mouse. If I come deep on this one, that might allow me the further one on the next one. So we would look to try and do that for pitch geography all over our pitch. So we would do that in and around the box. We would then do the same in a wider area where we're focusing on crossing. So I don't know a lot around lacrosse, but I would say obviously it's a bigger field. We would try and do those replicated pieces, but just move where the goals are. So if lacrosse, it's really wide, we would have that same setup, but the person on the wide one is maybe feeding into a small goal to replicate a cross field pass or something like that. And so we would just move what that 1v2 or 2v1 looks like and just put it pitch geography specific to allow them to get the decisions in, but allow us to get a lot of repetition over a short period of time. Yeah, for sure. And on that note, so I have six baskets in the gym. I got 12 to 15 guys. You put two guys at a basket and you can get a ton of one-on-one in and they're actually scoring, right? How do you replicate something like that in a soccer setup? So you could do that exact same thing. So we would do the same thing with a goal, but we just have different size goals. So you might have a really mini goal. Like we've got mini ones that are literally just a bit bigger than a TV stand. Yeah. Um, so you do that with mini ones. You could do the bigger ones, but invariably with the things, if we wanted to do it so they couldn't just get it out of their feet and whack it into a goal because the goals are massive, you just get the mini goals or smaller ones. So actually there's a level of precision to it. Or we'd put one goal inside the other 
So then if they're trying to finish, they now have to finish in particular areas of the goal. So you can't, the 75% of it is now no good. You've only got the corners and the top because that's the only bit that's got space to get it in on. So we do little things like that. There's also things over here that have nets where basically they, yeah, they're like plastic nets that you can hang up. And the only four areas that are actually free are the four corners. So two top corners and two bottom corners. If you hit anything else, the net will just ping it back out. Yeah, no, that's, I've never seen that. That's awesome. All right, well, this has been fun, man. And uh, we should definitely get back on and do this again in a little while after we've had some more conversations. But I appreciate you taking the time and calling from across the pond. I'm glad we were able to finally figure this out. No, I appreciate it. And I said, yeah, we'll definitely catch up again soon because I think we've got loads more to discuss. (laughs) This podcast was also brought to you by ttroops.com. As coaches, our inboxes get flooded with noise on how to make your program better teachhoops.com will get you focused on what needs to get done one thing you've heard from these podcasts is no matter the experience you gotta keep pushing yourself to be better coach steve collins will help you direct that noise he is there to help you he has the credentials as a coach and he's never turned down a teach hoops member sign up for a plan at teachhoops.com and mention us at checkout this site is here simply to help you be better Take advantage and see you on the court. Remember, go to teachhoops.com. This episode is brought to you by Element, spelled L-M-N-T. What is Element? It's a delicious sugar-free electrolyte drink mix. As a coach, we are constantly trying to find the best products for our athletes to train and compete at their highest level. Element is a great alternative to other commercial recovery and performance drinks and has enough sodium, potassium, and magnesium to get you feeling and performing your best. Plus, it has zero sugar, no artificial ingredients, and is gluten-free. With eight delicious flavors, you're guaranteed to find one your taste buds will love. I know our athletes love the citrus salt. We keep a variety box in the office, and our athletes stop by every day on their way to practice and games to load up. At this point, they won't even touch another electrolyte product. Without amazing products and sponsors like Element, our podcast would not be possible. Right now, when you click on our affiliate link and place your first Element order, Element will give us 100% commission. Last thing, Element might have the best return policy on the planet. If you don't love it, you'll be instantly refunded.